Lord God, as we come to the study of your word now, we pray that you would richly bless us with this spiritual food that we have just read. We pray, Lord God, that we would grow together through reading this passage. We pray that we would be encouraged by the heart of David we see, even just briefly at the end there. And may we be wary of those who are far from you. We pray that we would see this and much more in your word today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I know when we sometimes finish reading some parts of the Bible, particularly some parts of the Old Testament, you finish it, scratch your head and go, what does that mean for me today? Now, I had a lot of those moments preparing for this sermon. We don't live anywhere near Nob. This event happened a very long time ago. We look at this passage today and perhaps it seems distant, it seems foreign and there's things that perhaps we go... How on earth do we make any use of this? What benefit is this passage to me in my walk with the Lord? What benefit is this passage to me as I seek to share the goodness of God with those around me? And perhaps we walk away scratching our heads. Now, it is a confusing passage. It's one we have to work hard at. And there are things that do seem distant and foreign. But there are some things that really shine through in this passage. While David doesn't appear here very much at all, what we see of him very briefly at the end, uh, verses 20 through to 23, he is just this incredible counterbalance to the actions of Saul as they unfold through verses 6 to, 12, 6 to 19. While David and Saul are two individual people, they represent greater groups of people the way they are put to us by the author here. They represent either the faithful for David or the unfaithful being Saul. Now, it has been about three weeks since we were in 1 Samuel. Now, we're diving back in here and uh, we will take another break after next week for a few weeks. I've got some work being done on my knee. But to, to reset us before we reset again in a few weeks' time, to reset where we're at in 1 Samuel. Uh, David is officially the most wanted man in Israel. Saul wants to kill him. Saul's servants are now aware of this. They are plotting to kill David. Uh, David has left Israel for a time. And as we read um, last time we were in 1 Samuel, he reached this incredible low point. But God has worked to bring things back on track. Uh, We we finished verse 5 of chapter 22 where we left off last time with this glimmer of hope that God is speaking to and directing David. And in the four verses before that, David is beginning to gather men around him, men who aren't happy with the state of affairs in Israel. God is working to to slowly bring things back on track. Of course, Saul is still king. And while Saul is king, there will continue to be struggles within Israel. Now, when you hear of struggles... And Saul seemingly very actively striving to pursue David with the intent of killing him. Verse 6 might be a little bit odd. Saul was staying in Gibeah under a tamarisk tree in Ramah with his spear in his hand. Now the author doesn't tell us much about the location there. But there might be something for us to look into. And because the author doesn't spend much time on it, we're not going to spend much time on it. It could be worth looking into why Saul is here. He is in Ramah. Ramah was a place, the region where Samuel resided. 
Is he there to assert his authority? Is he just there to, to remind the people there that he's in charge, not Samuel, not David, Saul is in charge? It's worth looking into. And he's sitting there, he's sitting under a tree and he's holding his spear in his hand. Now we've seen Saul have a spear quite accessible a number of times. He's thrown it at David, he's done all those sorts of things. Is he just geeing himself up for a fight? Well, possibly he does want to get rid of David, but we need to remember, something I've reserved for this point, those fun little facts you store up, that when kings of this time were, were holding their spear, it basically functioned for the king, for monarchs, as a scepter. It was a signal that he was the ruler. Now, of course, anyone could hold a spear, but Saul sitting under a tree, monarchs would often sit themselves in an outside location, under a tree where they would hold court, he is reminding people he's in charge. It's a, a royal posture that Saul is adopting. Now, just comment on that because it, it might just seem a little bit weird. The author explains those things, so it's worth us understanding that Saul is, even if he's not doing a good job, he is the ruling monarch in Israel and he is making that known to people. Has a symbol of his authority, the scepter in his hand, and he is seated. Not in his court, but at an outside location where monarchs of the day would often hold court. He is ruling Israel. He's ruling Israel. And as a ruler of Israel, he seems to have one thing on his agenda. Let's kill David. Let's kill him. Let's get rid of him. And while Saul may not seem to be doing much, of course, he is holding court under that tree. And as soon as he hears that David and his men have been found, he immediately springs into action. Now, it, it almost makes you wonder how good a king Saul could have been if he had been this fervent to God. We, we see him with his own agendas. He wants to get rid of David. As soon as he has the opportunity, he's straight there. Imagine how wonderful he could have been as a king if he had been that responsive to God's word that committed to doing the will of God rather than his own will time and time again. So he hears in verse 6 that David's been found. And in verse 7 and 8, he gives this or tries to give a, a rousing patriotic speech for the men of Benjamin. And the nature of the speech is to stir up that tribalistic they had that they were the Benjamites. If you want to keep the good things that me, your fellow countrymen, your neighbor, your kinsman gives you because I'm the king and you're my tribesmen, I'm going to give you land, I'm going to give you authority over men, make you captains over thousands and hundreds. If you want to keep that, keep me as your king. Let's work together to get rid of David. He implies that David is not just a threat to Saul, but a threat to the livelihood of all of his tribesmen. Now, that seems quite patriotic, but verse 7 is like that. Then you get to verse 8, starts to nosedive. It takes all sorts of twists and turns there. What starts off as patriotic, let's gather together as countrymen, as tribesmen. Verse 8 just almost becomes vitriolic towards his own brothers. You've all betrayed me. Every one of you knew that Jonathan was friends with David. Every one of you knew that Jonathan and David had formed a covenant. You know that David's a threat to me and you did nothing. You've all betrayed me. It's almost this temper tantrum now. 
and set that in contrast to how Saul's trying to, to set himself up as a dignified monarch. Two verses later, temper tantrum. Not doing a great job. As he's saying in this, in trying to guilt trip them through this temper tantrum, men of Benjamin, if you care about me, if you care about Israel, if you care about your families, tell me more about David, and none of them step up. Now, the tribe of Benjamin do a lot of really questionable things through the Old Testament, but there's a reminder here that we can't just write them off. Here, then later on, when uh, the the event with uh, the, the killing of the priests happens, the men of Benjamin don't do anything there. They refuse. Right here, they don't step up to betray David either. They're not all to be written off. There's glimmers of hope right there. But David is not immediately protected in this setting because Doeg the Edomite was there. Now in chapter 21, which we read last time, uh, Doeg the Edomite was the one who saw David with the priests. He goes ahead and he spills the beans. He tells Saul what's happened. Or most of what's happened. He puts a little bit of a spin on it that Ahimelech the priest inquired of the Lord for David. Now Ahimelech did not do that. Ahimelech believed what David had said to him. Yes, David had lied, but he believed what David had said to him. This is no conspiracy against Saul, although the way it's presented to him by Doeg the Edomite, who says things that he wasn't in a position to know, present this to Saul as if there's this grand conspiracy. All the priests are against you. They all want to help David take the throne from you is how this is interpreted. And it's not true. But Saul seems to be increasingly paranoid. And he he, he gobbles this up. He calls the priests to him. He calls Ahimelech and all of his father's house to him. And it's an interesting read, but it's a sad read as we go through the discussion between Saul and Ahimelech, which is verses 11 through to verse 16. Saul is giving Ahimelech a a third-degree cross-examination almost. And you can imagine some of Ahimelech's confusion here. If you remember from chapter 21, David has said to him, dishonestly, I'm here on the, Lord, on, on the king's business. What Ahimelech says to Saul in this discussion seems to be what most of Israel would have known. Verse 14. Who among your servants, this is Ahimelech to Saul, who among your servants is as faithful as David? Who is a king's son-in-law who goes at your bidding and is honourable in your house? There's no reason why David's saying that he was there in Nob previously on the business of the king should be questioned. Now, we don't know if Ahimelech had heard the rumours about a falling out between David and Saul or not. That's speculation. Ahimelech just says, no, this is, this is what happens. David, your servant, he's a good guy. He's got your favour. He's your son-in-law. Why would I question him? can imagine the confusion of Ahimelech, can't you? What on earth is going on here? Why is Saul angry at me? 
I helped his family member. Isn't that a good thing But he's got Saul grumpy with him? It's a very difficult situation that Ahimelech's in. And it is the fruit of David's dishonesty. That doesn't mean that David takes all the responsibility for what comes next, but he does bear some responsibility for the atrocities that follow. Now, once more, we might be wondering, why is David put forward as as bearing fault here? He's a great king, one of Israel's greatest kings, arguably uh, on par with Solomon as this wonderful king of Israel. Why are we seeing faults here? The reason is he's a man. He's a man who made mistakes. We're going back to the, the, the dialogue recorded for us between Saul and Ahimelech. Ahimelech answers honestly. But every time between verses 12 to 16 when Saul speaks, he does not listen to what Ahimelech says. He doesn't listen. It would seem to us reading this that Saul has predetermined the guilt of Ahimelech of all the house of Ahimelech's father and of all the priests who were in Nob. Before hearing anything other than Doeg's version, which he wasn't in a position to know everything of, Saul has predetermined guilt. Before Ahimelech has even had a chance to speak, Saul has determined he is guilty. What we see here is a miscarriage of justice. This is a miscarriage of justice. Ahimelech honestly answers Saul. He honestly declares his innocence in the matter at hand. But Saul is completely immovable. His thoughts are wrong. His thoughts are murderous. His thoughts are hateful. But he is completely immovable no matter how the truth of the matter is presented to him. Now, think about this for Israel. What this means for Israel, their king who is to sit as judge over the whole nation, to rule the whole nation... He is meant to judge the matters brought before him based on their merits. He is not meant to judge matters based on his interpretation of how he can keep power. He is to judge these things as the law determines, not based on how maintaining and preserving his status is best maintained. Read through every part of Jewish law. And there is nothing there that allows for the judgment that Saul passes to stand. There is nothing that allows for this verdict to be delivered. And what drives it? Why is Saul like this? seems to just have this wrathful jealousy burning away inside of him. Let's revise what we know about Saul to see if that matches up with how he seems to be feeling now, this this wrathful jealousy. Saul has been granted the throne from which to rule all of Israel. He has been blessed with that By God. He has been blessed with that by God despite us first seeing Saul as a dude chasing a few lost donkeys. Chasing lost donkeys, 
Now the king. Not really much cause for jealousy of any other person in Israel based on that. He has been blessed with children. We don't know exactly how many children he had, perhaps more than are mentioned in these, uh, these accounts. But he had two daughters who, who seemed to have an affection for their father, even if they don't support all of the dopey decisions he makes. He has a son, Jonathan, who is a mighty warrior, who loves the Lord, who is respected and loved by the people. His family life is, seems great based on that. He's been blessed amazingly. He has the throne. He had pretty much nothing when he started off. Yes, his father had some status and some wealth, but nothing compared to what he has now. He could have been immediately taken off the throne by God because of his sin back in chapter 13, then again in chapter 15. But God has continued to deal graciously with him, allowing him to rule for longer. Yes, his family will not continue to rule. But he has been dealt with graciously, even in his failings as king. I mean, you, you look at these things that we know of Saul, and surely this is a man, we say, who, who should be thankful and content for the things he has in his life. Surely he should be thankful for what God has blessed him with. But instead, because David is said by the people to have killed 10,000 men and Saul's only killed 1,000 men, he is jealous, he is angry, he is wrathful. He's presenting himself despite his height as just being this small-minded, fearful, jealous, angry man. Seems for the last few chapters we've covered that, that he doesn't seem driven by, by how to, to better Israel. How to best govern God's people and that blessed responsibility he has. He's driven by how to kill David, his faithful, most wise servant. Now take this idea of his jealousy even further. Think of all that Saul had. And he's jealous of David who now doesn't even have a home he can go back to. He's jealous of David who has been forced to live in caves. He's jealous of David who, yes, is loved by the people, but has had most of his daily comforts removed from him by Saul. This is the man who Saul is jealous of. He's jealous of a man who has been forced by himself to go on the run with really nothing to, the na- to his name. That is the, the one who is the object of Saul's jealousy. It just doesn't make sense. Now we don't read those things in that passage before us this morning, but that is a context of the chapters leading into this. And a greater context is the spiritual state of men. Either we love God or we hate God. There is no middle ground. 
There is no ambiguity when it comes to this question. We either love God or we hate God. Saul's loathing, his Saul's hatred towards God seems to be coming through more and more. And is even turning that, as, we, as Jesus tells us will happen in John 15 to those who love him, it's not just God who's hated, but those who are, who are loved by God and those who love God will be hated by those who hate God. And Saul does know that David has been blessed by God. Saul has come to the realisation previously that, that David is the one who now has the Spirit of God on him. The Spirit of the Lord is on David. Saul's hatred for the Lord is just spiralling. He has all the priests who were in Nob before him. These men who have faithfully discharged their duty to the Lord before him. He renders an unjust guilty verdict. And he demands that they all be killed. Now again, the men of Benjamin didn't. The men of Benjamin didn't do that. His guards refused to execute this so-called justice. Praise God. Praise God for that. For that small glimmer of hope we see there. It seems that in orders that are, that are not contrary to God's word, that the men of Benjamin will obey their king, as they should. But they will not obey in this injustice. That takes guts. Saul's holding a spear. He has a track record with that thing. But they still refuse. Praise God for that brief mention of those guards there. But Doeg the Edomite is there. Despite him seemingly being at Nob for, for good intents in chapter 21... What we, what we see of, of Doeg the Edomite here is somebody who seems to have wormed his way into Israelite society but never truly loved God. Perhaps just going through the motions. Doeg has no issue with killing the priests. Not just the Himalek. 85 priests were killed by Doeg that day. Whether he commanded the men to help or personally killed all 85 is, is not the point. He took the lead role. He issued the orders given to him by Saul to kill 85 men. He is the one who bears the responsibility for enforcing that action. He killed 85 faithful men of God. It's horrific. Remember when David went to talk to Ahimelech? He asked for food and for weapons. They barely had any food to give him and they had one weapon, Goliath's sword, which was rightfully David's. That was all they had. 85 men who were killed this day who had no means to protect themselves. This is a hatred of those who do not love God. The king's jealous 
wrath-induced pity party has led to this horrific event taking place. His hatred of God is coming through here. But it's not just 85 priests. 85 unarmed priests had no way of defending themselves would be horrific enough. Saul is just filled with jealousy. He's filled with a wrathful jealousy. And that is expressed against God and against God's servant. He had every reason, humanly speaking, to be content. He had so much, but he is angry and he does not know the peace that passes all understanding that those who know and love God have. He does not truly know God. He knows about God, but he has no right relationship with God. He lashes out. He, he, he releases Doeg the Edomite on the whole city. Men, women, children, nursing, infants, Oxen, donkeys, sheep, all killed with the edge of a sword. With one survivor. One survivor. Verse 20 we read that Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, escaped. He somehow managed to escape the slaughter and he headed to where David was. He followed after David. And if you go back to, to chapter 22, verse 1, which we did look at last time, we, we're told that in those verses surrounding that, that the people who were distressed, people who were in debt, people who were discontent, those were the ones who were gathering to David. Now, we don't know if Abiathar had any debt, but he was clearly distressed clearly had reason just reason to be discontent he comes to David he tells David what's happened and when he does David realises something that we mentioned earlier David realises that he bears some of the responsibility for this atrocity that's taken place in Nob Now, we don't know if the outcome would have been different if David had been honest with Ahimelech with when he first went there. But what happened did happen. David does not run away from the truth of his involvement to his credit. Now, it's just a, a brief look in we get at the end of this reading today. But in those verses 22 and 23, again, David does take responsibility. And then he, he promises safety to Abiathar. Now, of course, you know that different people have different readings on things. Some say David's just getting a little bit plucky here. He's got 400 men gathered to him. He's reunited with his family. He's feeling a little bit overconfident. You know what? I'll keep you safe. Maybe he's trying to do that thing that leaders are sometimes told they have to do. No matter how unafraid you are, you act confident to inspire confidence in those around you. David doesn't have a set place to be at the moment. Again, he doesn't have a home. But I'd propose that there is a genuine, a genuine contentment with David 
Now we saw how bad his low was in chapter 21. That ancient east intolerable insult that he inflicted on himself by drooling in his own beard. (laughs) He's hit a pretty significant low. But God's brought him out of that. God has protected that, protected him through all of that he went through, even if he wasn't aware of it at the time. It, what seems to be happening here is David is living fully in the shadow of his rock and his deliverance. He is living knowing that he has to fully trust God. He cannot survive on his own strength. He cannot survive by his own wits and cunning. That didn't work out for him. He has to live trusting God in everything. Now again, Saul had it all. He had the crown. He had the men. He had the armies. He had the family. David has none of those things. He doesn't even have a home. But, but isn't this reflective of the spiritual reality of those who love and trust the Lord? That those of us who are loved by the Lord and love him in turn will find peace and safety and contentment with him. David really doesn't have much to offer here. But someone in need comes to him and what does he do? Does he say, no, we don't, we're rationing here. We don't quite have enough flour to, to make bread for all the people We can't really go and get much meat. So maybe if you find shelter over there, that's a better option for you. He doesn't turn Abiathar away. He welcomes him in. With what little he has that he knows has been given to him by God, he he extends his hospitality to somebody who is in great need. Saul wasn't like that, was he? Saul has only shown a love for himself. And through that persistent love of self and disregard of God, there is no contentment there. There is always someone or something to knock over. Again, David is just shown here so briefly in this passage. But isn't he just a wonderful counterbalance against Saul? To remind us of what a blessing it is to be with God and to have God with us. To remind us that even if everything is falling apart, even if everything is taken away, there is still peace and contentment and even certainty to be found with God. Abiathar, stay here with me. You will be safe. Safe because of God. When people come to us in need, do we welcome them in? When we know somebody is at a low point, do we invite them over? Do we have a meal or a coffee together? Do we pick up the phone and call or text? Are we reaching out to those who are battling at the moment? The Bible wasn't. David offered him all that he could. But 
even further than that, for, for each of us to ask was, are we like David in this regard? Have we found real contentment and real peace and real safety with God? Can we say with the sort of confidence David does that we'll be safe? We should be reminded of the wonderful encouragement of Reuben despite his terrible hardship. 14-year-old boy told he won't walk again. What's his response? I think we should pray. I think we should pray. Because he knows God. And he knows that God is there. And he knows that God is with him. And you talk about hard circumstances. Can you really think of much harder than that for a 14-year-old boy? Everything seems to be taken away, but we should pray. May we be like that. May we be like David. We should pray for ourselves and for each other that God might grow and keep growing this sort of contentment and safety we find in him. That we might be so clearly different in in attitude and behaviour than those who stand against God in all that we do. Let's glorify his name. It may feel as if we don't have much and we may not have much. But he is always our rock. He is always to be praised. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this portion of your word. It's a horrific thing to read in so many ways where such slaughter And such a miscarriage of adjustment would take place. Yet God, we thank you for the wonderful example that David is to us here. We thank you for the way that you worked in him to allow him to be that for us. We pray that we would truly find that contentment, that safety, that comfort in you that David seemed to have. May you grow that in us. May you keep growing that in us that we might say that there is safety to be found with us, not because of our protect, not because of what we can offer, but because of what you offer. May each of us grow in this way. May each of us be hospitable. May each of us love you more. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.